When it comes to evangelization, obviously each one of us, without exception, we are invited and indeed called by the Lord Jesus Christ to make the faith intelligible, to explain the faith to the world using terms and ideas and concepts which make sense, which are relatable, which draw people to the Christian thing. At the same time, I think it's really important for us to realize that the Lord isn't inviting us to limit our own faith journey to that which the world finds to be comprehensible. But instead, we need to have the courage to be our true selves. Not our false selves, not our compromised selves, certainly not our sinful selves, but indeed our true selves, regardless of whether or not the world actually affirms us in this regard. Now, in order to properly frame this thing we're going to talk about today, perhaps we might begin by looking at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, which describes these so-called Beatitudes. And just to kind of paraphrase the thing, basically the Beatitudes go like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then later on, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and so on and so forth. Now, obviously, the recurring word that you find in the context of the Beatitudes is this word blessed, which is often translated as happy. So again, happier the poor in spirit, happier the meek, and so on and so forth. But perhaps a better translation is to render it as on the way. And so, for example, on the way are people who are poor in spirit. On the way are people who are meek. On the way are people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And of course, the obvious question is, on the way to what? on the way to becoming the person that God is calling to be, on the way to becoming a saint, on the way to becoming holy. Now, when it comes to the notion of holiness and sainthood, we tend to be somewhat reductive and even misleading in this regard, right? So a lot of people think of holiness and sainthood in terms of having a collection of virtues or, or a collection of habits of self-control, right? So maybe I'm generous, maybe I'm humble, maybe I can hold my breath, whatever the case may be. But that said, perhaps the more appropriate way to look at holiness and sainthood is look at it in terms of wholeness or completion. And if you think about it, this makes a whole lot of sense. Because if you go back to the opening line of the Catechism of the Holy Catholic Church, what do we find? The whole purpose of life is to share in God's blessed life. And everything that implies, right? Peace, joy, freedom, happiness, the whole nine yards. But you see, if you hold that thought now and you go back to the Beatitudes, what Jesus seems to be saying, for example, is, you know, on the way to being free and happy and peaceful and joyful are people who are meek, people who are poor, people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so in a certain sense, what the Lord seems to be saying through the Beatitudes is truly on the way to fulfilling the deepest desires of the human heart are people who are seen by the world as being losers. In other words, the promise behind the Beatitudes seems to be that if you have the courage and the faith to pursue those things which seem to lead to disaster, in reality, you'll actually find the fullness of life. But of course, therein lies the great paradox of the Christian life. And so in order for me to live, I gotta die. In order for me to find life, I truly need to give my life away. And of course, if you think about it, doesn't this really harken back to what we said at the outset, right? In order for me to live the faith with authenticity, I need to have the courage to be my true self, to stand alone in a certain sense in terms of my journey with the Lord, regardless of whether or not the world actually affirms me in this particular direction. So to illustrate the point, let me give you a couple of examples. One from the Bible and another one from contemporary life. So in terms of the first example, this is taken from the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, where the Lord is basically warning people against following false messiahs. And so basically what he says is, beware that you were not led astray. 
for many people will come in my name and say, I am he, or the time is near. And then he concludes by saying, do not go after them. Now certainly one entirely valid way of reading this particular passage is to read it in light of the end times, right? So basically what the Lord seems to be saying through this gospel is don't be led astray by false messiahs. And again, that's an entirely valid way to interpret this particular passage. But that said, another legitimate way to look at this passage is to read it in light of current times. And so from this perspective, the Lord seems to be saying, like, don't be led astray by the competing voices of the world, which seem to say to you, this is the way that leads to new life, as opposed to the path proposed to you by the gospel, whether we're talking about cultural influences or even that nagging voice in your own head. Okay, but that brings us to our second example. And this is taken from a pastoral situation that I dealt with sometime in the past, even though I've obviously changed the facts and the details to protect the innocent. And so basically what happened was that one time this young woman entered into my office at the church, and we started talking about the death of her parents. And so basically as the story goes, back in the day when she was still a young girl, her father died, right? So her father had cheated on her mother and subsequently left the family, but then subsequently after that, uh, he died after uh, reconciling to a certain extent with um, the young girl who had now become a young woman with her own family. And as a result, uh, in the aftermath of the death of her father, uh, she remembers being completely devastated, emotionally and psychologically wounded for a period of like six months. And it just so happens that many years later, the young woman's mother got sick and, and then she was about to die. And as a result of which, the young woman was in a bit of a panic, right? And so her thinking was like, well, gosh, I wasn't even that close to my father. He died. I was devastated. Now my mother's going to die. I'm really close to her. So what's going to happen to me in the aftermath of her death? But then what happened to this young woman's great surprise is that when her mother died, she was certainly sad, and she certainly missed her mother's presence, but at the same time, she wasn't crushed or devastated like she was in the aftermath of her father's death. And so one of the main reasons why she had come into the office to talk to me was to kind of figure out why that was the case. Now, as you might expect in response, I started asking this woman a whole bunch of questions, questions pertaining to her life, her relationship with her parents, and a ton of questions about her relationship with her father. Because something I noticed even early on in the meeting was that whenever this young woman even thought about her father, she was on the verge of tears, in a way which she wasn't when she thought about the death of her mother. And so given all that, the way I basically framed it to this young woman was to basically say, well, like, look, when you think right now about how you're feeling sad at the mere thought of the death of your father, like, what's the thought associated with that feeling? And you see, what's interesting is that in retrospect, because the actual thought was so painful, she initially framed it in terms of her mother. And so initially what she said was that this thought that I have in connection with this deep feeling of sadness connected to the death of my father is, why did you leave my mother? Because if you think about it, what she really meant to say, and eventually we got there, was, why did you leave me? Why did you leave me? And in particular, why didn't you love me enough, Dad, to stay? And the fact that you left, what does that say about me as a daughter, as a little girl? And now you're dead and you can't answer any of those questions. And that's why I'm sad. Now, obviously, after hearing this, after reaching this point in the conversation, we, we both had to sit with it for a bit. But then eventually I said to her basically two things. And so first of all, what I said, I basically affirmed her in her experience of being wounded, saying to her like, yeah, this was a terrible thing that happened to you and your father shouldn't have hurt you in this way. But it speaks to the fact that this is a common thing, right? Whenever we haven't been loved in the way that we should have been loved, especially by people around us who should have loved us, 
people who had a duty to love us, like our parents, our friends, people close to us, a wound obtains, and certainly a wound obtained in her heart. But funny enough, the second thing I brought up was a talk given several years ago by Bishop Robert Barron back when he was simply Father Barron at the headquarters of Google. And so basically over the course of this talk, Bishop Robert Barron talked about any number of things, but including and especially in a certain sense the classical substitutes for the reality of God, wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. And for me, even to this day, the most striking part of that particular talk is when he spoke about the notion of honor. So basically just to paraphrase, what he said was that honor is simply the public recognition of something that people perceive to be true. Again, the public recognition of something that people perceive to be true. And of course, the key part of that particular statement is a notion of perception. Again, something which people perceive to be true, which speaks to the fact that the thing is true or not, independent of the public recognition of the people at large. But just to go back to this example of the young lady, right? So basically, in light of this talk by Bishop Barron and this biblical concept of honor, what I basically said to her was like, look, even though it's true that your father didn't love you or affirm you in the way that he should have loved you and affirmed you, the fact of the matter is you are who you are. You are who you are regardless of his affirmation or lack thereof. You are the beloved child of God. That's a fact. You are truly the beloved daughter of Christ the King, independent of whether or not the world actually affirms you in this regard. Because at the end of the day, your dignity and identity in Christ remains true. It remains a fact, independent again of public recognition. It remains true whether or not the world actually affirms it to be such.